there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 429. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to Ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is This Show Is So Gay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay. Like us, because we sure as heck like you. We have just a spectacular show for you this week. Let me introduce our guest. And this is a long intro, so guest, you can take a little nap for a second. <laughs> Beth Lapidus is a host, a comedian, a producer, an author, an actor, and so much more. She is perhaps best known as the creatrix, host, and producer of Uncabaret the groundbreaking alternative comedy show. Uncabaret has been featured on so many different platforms, including Comedy Central, Amazon, Comedy World Radio, and Audible.com, as well as live in Los Angeles on Sunday nights for almost 30 years. She was a podcaster with her show Life and Beth. She hosted a daily radio show, The Beth Lapidus Experience, for Comedy World Radio, and a talk show pilot for MTV called The Couch. She has appeared on, you know, all the shows, including the Today Show, CNN, All Things Considered, so many more. Her writing has appeared in Time Magazine, O Magazine, The Los Angeles Times. I couldn't even list all of them. She's the author of Did I Wake You? Haiku for Modern Living. She also created, hosted, and wrote for Say the Word, a reading show of personal narrative by some of the best TV and film comedy writers out there. My gosh, I could just keep reading this. Let me just also say, she was also the first guest star on Will and Grace, where she played a club owner and she played a performance artist on Sex in the City. But that's enough already because I want to chat with her. Beth Lapidus, welcome <laughs> to this show is so gay. Hi, Ken. <laughs> this show is so gay and the intro is so long. <laughs> Beth, I cut stuff out of the intro. Oh, well. We have so much ground to cover, Beth. Are you ready? I'm ready. So I'm going to start with you, Beth, as we start with all of our funny people over the years on the show. Where does Beth Lapidus find the funny? You know, I find this funny the same place everybody else finds the funny. There's only one place you find the funny, where everything sucks, where things are uncomfortable, where there's pain, where there's heartache, where there's disaster, but also, you know, every every gradient of that of that rainbow. That's where you look. And sometimes it's just the tiniest little thing and it's barely even uncomfortable and it's funny and it's light and sometimes it's a bigger, darker thing and it's heavy and, you know, really uncomfortable. Um, you know, I tend to want to look on the bright side. Nice. So sometimes what the funny is for me is how desperate I am to look on the bright side of something that's not that great. Like, you know, I'm currently having a thing where I'm having flashes on the side of my eyes, and my immediate explanation is it's angels. And that to me is hilarious, and, you know, and I do really believe that's what it is, even though there is also vitreous fluid detaching from my retina. So, you know, so a lot of it is, for me, that that difficulty might be just trying to make everything work out okay. I feel like it generally works out okay for you. Um... Well, okay. <laughs> we'll go with that. You know what? I have a big, uh, there's a big conversation going on in my head right now about everything unfolding in divine order and, or is everything chaos or is everything chaos 
disguised as divine order or is everything divine order disguised as chaos? And, you know, I search for meaning. I'm always looking for what things mean. My therapist said to me, well, humans are, you know, meaning-making machines. And I'm like, well, doesn't that prove that we're supposed to make meaning? Yeah. I mean, we, we are that. We evolved as that. Doesn't that mean there is meaning to find? I'm all for that. That's our journey. That's our journey. Okay. That's our journey. Yeah. When little Beth Lapidus was growing up there in Connecticut, was this the dream? So not. I mean, this was so not the dream. I can't tell you how much this wasn't the dream. (laughs) Um, I was an artist. I loved art. I didn't even know what that meant. But I knew I wanted to go to the Yale Art Gallery. I wanted to go to New York. And I wanted to go to MoMA. I idolized Van Gogh. And one of my first jokes when I was really starting out in comedy was I'm sort of like a cross between Van Gogh and that girl, Van Girl or that go. I mean, it's a bad joke, but, you know, that sort of you you want the air, you know, you don't want to give up your ear. You know, you're still in suburban New Haven. Right. But there was this idea. What I really got from the art world, I mean, ultimately, I did move to New York and I did become an artist. And my first work was visual art and I made books and they were shown at you know, my, you know, small claim to fame was the Metropolitan Museum of Art Library. But it and it happened pretty fast, but I really realized that visual art was for wealthy people. Like you were really ultimately making thing now that's not true it's not that many years later but the world has changed and now nobody buys art so there you go but i don't know i always loved performing i knew i didn't want to be an actress i knew i didn't want to be a dancer though i did both of those things a little bit and i ultimately gravitated towards performance art because it sort of brought everything in and i did have a successful career if as a performance artist if you can put those two words in one sentence you sure as heck did you, you know, I, I got any, you know, I did the thing of, you know, I got NEAs and I toured yeah. internationally and, um, but ultimately my work was kind of getting funny. And then I just thought, mm, maybe, you know, maybe I should be more funny on purpose and actually head towards the comedy world. Then when I got to the comedy world, I was just horrified at how old fashioned it was. Yeah. That was so. My dream was really New York, and I really did have a lot of New York. I L.A. wasn't even almost the only part of L.A. that I really thought about was Joni Mitchell, Joni Mitchell, and like Ladies of the Canyon. I didn't even know the canyons were real. <laughs> and now you've discovered them. Now I feel like the first time you were in the canyons, you were just wide-eyed and looking around. I was just like, "What? <laughs> this is a real thing." Well, talk to me about that transition. So many of your incredible colleagues have talked about that first time being on stage. What do you remember about that first time being on stage? Well, the first time on, you know, it's it's hard to say, and this is sort of goes also, I'm going to loop this in with, you were saying on Cabaret 30 years, and we're celebrating our 25th anniversary next year, because it's very hard to know where to count from sometimes. Right. And like, is there a, be- you know, I love now that we have beta launches and soft launches, and there's this idea that the beginning, it's very much like, you know, like human birth, you know, it's like, where, where do you begin life? I mean, it is a real question. Where does life begin? And that's true in creativity as well. You know, there was the early performances on the fireplace in my, you know, in New Haven growing right. up. There was, uh, you know, high school dance. I, I, I really gravitated towards dance more than theater as a 
you know, high school and college, I always sort of thought plays were a little silly. I'm sorry, everybody in theater. I love a theatrical, like, extravaganza, but with a play, I'm often like, I mean, this isn't always true, Angels in America. I mean, there are, you know, I've been wrapped up in plays. But for me, I always am a little bit like, you know, we're right here. Like, we're right here. I mean, it's so silly to pretend you're not there, because you're right there. Right. I don't know, the thing of plays... We have, now that we have film and TV, you know, so um, I love anything where the performer is connected to the audience in a very direct way, and that was true for dance. So I was drawn to dance, and I was a dancer, and I was a choreographer at Brown, and I did very experimental modern dance choreography, and when I went to New York, I had or, had that under my belt, and I had done that a lot, and... I knew I wasn't going to be a dancer. I mean, I didn't have that body. I didn't have that drive. I didn't have, I don't have that much commit. You know, physical reality is not dependable to me. So I knew I wasn't going to be a dancer. So, and that was one of my problems with visual arts. Also, visual arts are super material based. You know, it's a lot of stuff. Right. And I love words. You know, when it comes down to it, I love words. I love ideas. I love energy. And um, so, you know, I met some performance artists. I was uh, working at a copy shop. There were still copy shops. Yeah. That was a thing. And um, and they were really little places. They were sort of like the coffee shops. They sound a little similar, too. I mean, they were places, hubs of activity. And I met a lot of people, and I was Xeroxing. I was a printmaker, so I loved Xeroxing. That was sort of fun for me. Nice. And I saw performance art, and I thought, ah, oh, that's a thing I could do. And I just started doing it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I could really do this. This is something I can really do. And I just turned the the small books into big books, and I started performing with these big books, and then that was a lot to carry around, and then it got multimedia. And then ultimately, the biggest transition performance-wise, because so you see it's very gradual. It's very... It's step by step. You're at a little stage, then you're at a bigger stage, then you're dancing, then you're talking. It all is like these small increments of change. Change can be catastrophic and it can be uh, gradual. So that's kind of a that was kind of that. Um, moving from theater performance and performance or performance to comedy performance, yeah. that was catastrophic. That was a major mind shift. Yeah. Let's say. The first time you're on stage doing stand-up, you do not know what's happening. Even though I had spent hours on stage and I was so comfortable on stage, time is just a different thing. And that's one of the magics of stand-up is time changes so radically. You don't know whether it's going faster or slower. You feel you've been there forever, but isn't it just one minute? You, you, you don't know what's happening. It's crazy. And I mean, I was in a place where my early performances in New York, I, I started getting stage time pretty early on because I had spent so much time on stage, which a lot of beginning comedians hadn't. Right. But um, I wasn't that funny. <laughs> I was just not that funny. <laughs> But I remember I was doing some gig in some, I can't even remember where it was. I knew I had to get on some train and go somewhere, and it was in the bur. it was in the outer reaches. And it was a comedy club, and the club owner said to me when I got off stage, he said, I don't understand it. I mean, they're listening, and they're sitting there, and they're listening, and they're quiet, and they're not laughing. I mean, that never happened. <laughs> it's kind of a compliment. Yeah, it was kind of a compliment. And then... It, he said, you know, but I can help you. Here's what you're doing wrong. You're, you're, it's like you're doing jazz in a rock club. What you need to do, you're, you're, you're doing 
like one two when you should be doing one two your timing's off i was like that's the easiest fix and i just walked around in new york going like one two one two one two one two and i thought that and you know there is it's the beautiful thing of that is it's the worst advice and the best advice like at the same time right <laughs> because you know the thing is there is such a thing as comedy timing you do have to know what it is and it's different than other timing but there's also a thing where the only great comedy doesn't sound like anybody else, so you can't prescribe it. And the only way you can find it is to find your own, but the only thing is you need to know that your comedy timing has to be comedy timing. Yeah. By the way, I am counting it as 30 years. I'm counting 1988 as the launch of Uncabaret. I don't know what you're counting. Well, because the first performances were erratic, they, I kind of count it from, I feel like that's the soft launch. There were a bunch of years where where it began, I was doing a small, this is so gay, by the way. This is so gay. <laughs> I'm excited. I went, that was going back and forth between the stand-up and the performance art. And I was had done a one-person show in town called Globomania, and I was about to go to Europe to, to on tour. I wanted to redo it and just, you know, polish it up. So I was doing a small performance at a space that was called the Women's Building, and it was where Judy Chicago had done the dinner party. And children, look that up. Google that right now. <laughs> and they were really laughing really, really hard. And sometimes you're on stage, and you're like, I kind of wish it was as funny as they think it is. It's just not quite. And I said that to them. I said, it's not. Afterwards, I said, it wasn't as funny as you thought it was. When was the last time you laughed? I mean, they were like not breathing laughing. And they said, oh, we don't laugh. We're women and we're gay and we're artists. And if we go to comedy clubs, they just make fun of us. I said, you know what? I'm going to make you a show and it's going to be unhomophobic, unxenophobic, unmisogynist. It'll be the uncabaret. And it was literally born in that second for wow. that audience. And it was just a download. I mean, I feel it was a sign to me. I feel Uncabaret has been very challenging in a lot of ways. and uh, But I've always felt like it's an assignment. I feel like I've been fated to do it. I feel it's a mission. And I feel it was given to me in that moment. And so it wasn't clear, though, exactly what it was. We did a bunch of shows there. They lost their funding. It was just kind of experimental what it was going to be. It was kind of just women and kind of women who were a little different. And then I did a run at Highways Performance Art Space um, with Taylor Negron and Judy Toll. That was just the two of them and me. And then I took time out to run for First Lady. You didn't yes, mention you that did. in my bio. Know, well, a big part of my life. <laughs> and um, then uh, when Luna Park became available, that was when I really feel it landed. Because Jean-Pierre, who is... You know, this is so gay, too. I mean, the club owners that are really culture makers, you know, they often go unnoticed. And he was a big part of L.A. culture and really helped shape what was available. And he was a curator of entertainment in a certain way. You know, a lot of spaces are pay-to-play or whoever can bring in an audience. He had real. You knew that if you were going to go see something there, it had something. Yeah. So... He said, do you want to do something? And I said, you know, yeah, I want to do the on cabaret. He said, well, no, comedy. You know, maybe he was thinking a little more in the performance art you know, realm. I don't know what he was thinking. He said, is it going to be funny? And I said, no, it's going to be horrible. And, you know, there you go. Um, and then we were booked for three Sunday nights. 
and we ran for seven years. It was wow. like the Gilligan's Island of shows. So I sort of mark from the beginning of Luna Park as a kind of launch, though there were definitely important years before that. And really? also, I just don't want to say 30, because then the math is just too horrible. <laughs> you, you know what goes really well with Uncabaret? What? That would be vegan food. I just like that combination. Yeah. Oh, and the space that we're in now, that was also Divine Order, Everything Unfolding. I mean, if you go, everything unfolds. So do we have time for a little magical story? Oh, my God, yeah. Okay, so let's just say I had this one year about seven years ago that was Anas Haribo. Okay. You know, it was just one of those just awful years, um, everything, just everything falling apart and everything having to come back together. I had put on Cabaret on hiatus, and a friend... Uh, said to Mitch Kaplan and I, why don't you guys do, I'm working at this place, maybe you guys can do a show there. And I was like, "Mm, all right. Meanwhile, just as a background, a friend of mine had given me a card that said, first, hope one way. It was like a street sign, hope one way. And I was really struggling with the idea of hope. I really just thought, you know, hope, it's the thing that'll kill you. It's about the future. I'm trying to live in the now. All the yoga tells you to be in the now, be here now, blah, blah, blah. Hope is about later. And, you know, the ever-receding, you know, movie dreams, the TV show you might have, they keep tempting you. I'm not about hope anymore. I'm just about living right now. And yet she had given me this card, and it was such a hard year, and it was such a sweet note, and I actually moved like 18 times in two years. It was like a very, you know, tumultuous, uh, you know, reshifting of everything. Right. And, um, and I kept this card everywhere I moved. I kept looking at this card. So Mitch and I go down to the venue, and it's called First and Hope, and it doesn't register at all that this is where we're going. That it's a venue called First and Hope, and I've been carrying this card around that says Hope One Way. It's like this a vision board in a card. I mean, it was so crazy. And then we talked to them. It's the most beautiful room. It's so hard to find a good room. That's a small room, you know, 100 seats, around 100 seats. It's a very difficult business. So they don't last or they're really junked up. And this was the most pristine, beautiful, secret room that nobody in town knows about. And it's called First and Hope. And they're going to pay us to do a show. This is like unheard of. I love it. And we say, okay. And again, I agree to one show and because I'm like I'm thinking well we could do playtime with Beth and Mitch or we'd been working on this other show 100% happy 88% of the time and Mitch says no let's do on cabaret and I'm like that show's dead to me I'm never doing that show again that's it's over and he said no no people love it and it's so great and we're gonna do it together it'll be so much fun and I said oh we'll do one show for my birthday and now here we are at the end of our sixth year there Incredible. Again, listeners, we are here with Beth Lapidus, host, comedian, producer, author, actor, so much more. I want a free workshop right this very second, Beth. Beth Lapidus, how can I be the funniest me? Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, You have to be yourself, Ken. It's the only (laughs) thing you can do. I would imagine that when people take workshops with you, that's something that people struggle with, how to actually be their authentic selves. It is. And, you know, it's a crazy gift to have to be able to look at somebody and watch them and go, that's you. That's not you. That's fake. That's real. You know, that's a really important part of your story. That's just killing time. There are things like, you know, you asked me, where do people find funny? And you can direct people to their pain and you can go, you're sketching away from this thing, which is important and you're not willing to look at it. Uh, There's also like technical stuff. There's some, you know, super just easy technical things, you know, that are just 
very rudimentary. But then, you know, there are other things that are like dynamics. Um, Women, when they are nervous, tend to get really screechy. Guys will go super flat. I mean, those are some sort of performance things. A lot of it's in the writing. A lot of it's in putting in your hours. A lot of it is being willing to understand, you know, what your story is and really keep going for it. I'm all for that. World AIDS Day was last week. I, I want to talk to you about a post that you put up on the Huffington Post years ago, and, and I want to read it for our listening audience because it, it's so beautiful. You wrote this, World AIDS Day got me thinking about my high school film teacher, Richard Humans, Yale scholar mm. and lover of high-low culture. After feeling a big bucket of love for him, I started to think RIP, but then I started wondering, is that what we really wish for, the dead, or ourselves when we're disembodied, to rest in peace, nothing against peace or rest, but as the end game? And, and you went on to write this. <laughs> I, I love that. I think I'd prefer swirl in grace, S-I-G, or dance with love. Light, DWL, or play in Transformation, PIT. At any rate, here's to Richard and many other friends and artists and lovers, LIT, laugh in timelessness. I would imagine, Beth, that doing the work that you've done and encountering all the incredible artists that you have, that HIV and AIDS, and I know you've performed at benefits and whatnot, that that very much mm-hmm. has, that you've been at that intersection of, of working with this disease that's devastated so many of us. Yeah. Oh, my God. That- you know, it's so funny as a writer, sometimes you just keep writing. I mean, especially with social media, you just keep putting it out there. I can't, I don't remember writing that at all. And I feel like I'm listening to something somebody else wrote. It's so good. I should remember that. That's how I feel when I read my own writing. I feel like two people. That's so good. I should remember that. Um, you know, Richard was an incredible influence and he was such a special person. And I think, you know, these teachers who get us as children of difference, let's just say that. I mean, I almost think, I'm at a place with LGBTQA, you know, I'm almost like, can we just go for D? Could we just go for D for different? Because if we can, it would connect us all. I feel like we're starting to have too many boxes almost. My own, my own little craziness. But Richard was a beacon of light and a beacon of place for... I mean, he was a gay guy teaching high school teachers, and he necessarily drew to him those of us who needed a... wasn't even explicit, but we were friends still when I was in New York, and I mean, it was a note from his sister. It was a different time. Yeah. I'm going through Richard's book, and I'm writing, you know, to everyone in his book, and they didn't even know what to call it. I mean, he was in the first wave. It was just... And I still think of him, of course, all the time watching movies and how much he taught me. And he was just so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what to say. We've, I mean, I every year LAI Works asks me to contribute to their um, Day Without Art listening, you know, playlist they do, which is a great thing. You guys check that out. They yeah. have these on YouTube, and they're beautiful compilations that people make contributions to and they have I've done it for a couple of years now I don't know how long they've been doing it so the quilt how do we process it I mean I'm not even sure how to answer that question because it's you lose people and you just remember what they might you know what it's all the friends that you've lost too young I mean friends to AIDS I have had lost other friends to complications from AIDS and I've lost other friends to cancer and you know, there are days that their spirit just moves through you and just you can't believe they're not here. And it's always, the you know, these vital people. And 
why did they leave the planet and what's happening and why you know yeah Taylor Negron Negron. all the time oh my gosh it's it's hard to even wrap my mind around that he's not around it's so hard but you know he came to me a lot right when he passed I got a lot of visitation from him and a lot of instruction and watching him in his last year I mean I knew he was near the end I mean it wasn't clear exactly when but he was performing you know up until the end and he was in a very pure place of connection he knew that it was the end and he was performing with that knowledge and here's a lesson in storytelling I mean when you say how to be the funniest you Taylor was a great performer because he was both silly and deep and he had so many different modes and he could be kind of hacky and he could also tell the most profound stories and and he had a story about getting a monkey as a child. You can imagine the monkey antics in that story. When he first started to tell that story, it was silly and it was sort of, you know, an adventure story with his crazy family. He told that story periodically over the next 10 years. And by the last time I heard him tell the story, he added a moment to the story where suddenly the monkey is in his arm. It's a monkey's like, you know, it's a story where the monkey's like jacking off on his parents, like, you know, fur coats and stuff. Okay. It's, it's like that kind of story, running away and, you know, in the, into the wilds of, you know, Glendale. But meanwhile, at the end of the last time that he told this story, he's looking into the monkey's eyes and he knows unconditional love for the first time. Wow. He never, ever put that in the story before. So this is an important thing because, you know, we have these stories in our lives and as we change, it's like the stories that we have are these gifts that we're given and only through living the stories do we ever get to understand the stories. It's like a, it's a crazy sort of, what are, when you can't see where the beginning or end of that is. You live the story, the story changes. You understand the story differently, the story changes. It's an infinite loop of growth and possibility. And stories are something that, I mean, the beautiful thing about being a performer and knowing storytellers is like, you sort of see where your art, the, the stories that you tell sort of shape your life also. And this is, if I could gift this to your, to your listeners, would be, you know, to really look at the stories of your life. I mean, one of the most fun things I do as a teacher is teach people who aren't performers because just to watch people get to know their story and to understand their story is sort of like therapy without feeling like you have a therapeutic end. You know, to understand your story is a great human desire and something we don't really necessarily make time for. Yeah. You have another just wonderful piece. You have so many wonderful pieces online, but one of the oh. ones that I absolutely love is is over on the Huffington Post, and it's called How Softening Helps. And you, you wrote this right after the Orlando massacre at the, at the Pulse nightclub. And, and in that piece, you, you write about this concept of, of softening, and you write connection is softening. But you also write this. Last Sunday, I was scared before Uncabaret, but then I wasn't. On stage, I talked about it, and not just it. Throughout the night, we raised our spirits, softening and yet enlivening. Softening can have an upward energy, even though we think of butter and melting. I loved that, Beth. Oh, thank you. I I have a hard time believing that you get scared before you go on stage. Well, sometimes I'm trying to think back of what that is. I mean, I'm not often scared 
scared. Well, I'll tell you what's scary for me. I mean, if something like that, okay, it's Orlando, I'm going to need to talk about it and I'm going to need to be funny yeah. at the same time. And how do I enter that space? I mean, on a mirror in my house, I have written, um, I love the unknown. Mm. <laughs> because I really don't. I really just hate the unknown. It's just <laughs> awful. Uh, and I think I love the unknown. There's more God there, but that's true. That is where God is. And that is, or call it mystery, you know. And so there's a certain sense. The softening is an also like an opening. There's an opening to what can happen if you don't try to control. And I think this is for me, you know, in terms of well, why would I keep doing on cabaret for? you know, 25, maybe 30, maybe four, you know, however long, this idea of walking onto stage almost every Sunday, having an idea of what I'm going to talk about, but not necessarily, quote unquote, knowing the whole of it and letting things happen, but having enough of an idea and having to be in the now. I mean, it is sort of, you know, exactly that. So that's what's scary is to enter a now that might be uncomfortable. I have a friend who has tattooed onto her arm Right now, this is how it is. And I think, oh, you know, I'm working on a book now called The Eight Thoughts, and that's one of them. Now I want that tattoo, too. Well, in addition to the book, what is coming up for you, Beth, that you are excited about? Oh, besides this phone call, I was looking forward to nothing else. Um, <laughs> it's all downhill from here. <laughs> I, I, uh, um, what's coming up next on Google Chrome? So many beautiful paintings. It's such a parade. Uh, okay, what, next year is going to be, I want every single listener, every one of you listeners, go be so gay and follow on Cabaret because there's going to be a lot of exciting, we're going to have a big 25th uh, anniversary show that I can't quite announce yet, but it's going to be really, really exciting and fun. And um, that's in the works and that's going to be Really, uh, you know, it's going to be very family and very, it's going to be, yeah, a homecoming. Then um, I'm working on this book and I'm working on a, you know, another TV show and maybe I'll sell this one. I love it. And uh, maybe it'll be on your TV screen within months. Working on, yeah, I wrote a feature and I'm trying to set that up. As the podcast is going to come back, I'm re- reformulating a little bit and looking for a home for it. And uh, I really want to focus. Life and Death was really me talking to people, and it was really just life. And I really want to get into now the very specific ideas of how really focus it on change and how people change and stories of change and what's changing right now and how do we understand it and what are, you know, my guests very clear uh, moments of change and, you know, the changing world we're living in. I just want to focus on that very specifically and I'm um, looking for a place to do that. And we're going to start doing an on-cabaret podcast with just, you know, the best clip from last week. So that's all going to be around. And always looking for a way to get on-cabaret out on the road. I think there's some interest in that. Um, want to do some more touring, see, get to more of the country. It's, I think, important to be out and about. We've toured, a, we've toured to some degree. It's a little unwieldy because of, you know, bringing group, but there's interest and we have, you know, lots of talent who want to go. So we're working on putting that together. Um, always keeping up with the teaching and the workshops and the coaching uh, as a hobby. And uh, that's about it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's it. amazing. Just fighting the good fight, you know, while trying to keep business going. It's That's life. That's the whole thing.
Listeners, this is what we need you to do right this very second. Stroll on over to uncabaret.com. That's uncabaret.com. And right there on uncabaret.com, you can link up and follow right there on Facebook and on Twitter and, and on YouTube. There's just exciting things happening. This is this is my adoration for you, Beth. I have to say, I, I've been following you for so, so long. And what really? I... Oh, what I love about you and what you put out there, you always convey that you are following whatever your authentic path is and you don't have to go the established route or you don't have to do this, you don't have to do that. And you've always inspired me to say, okay, where is the authenticity? Follow it. And that's what you have always done in my life. Oh, that means so much to me. I I feel like I... I'm going to be inspired by you now. You're giving it right back to me. Well, there you go. And I have to, I can't have you on without ending with a haiku. So I will, I offer you forth this haiku to all of our listeners. It's from Beth. I love this one. Fear keeps me awake. Gratitude puts me to sleep. Love says good morning. And and you provide all those things for us, Beth. And I appreciate it. All the gratitude, all the love. Oh, thank you so much, Ken. It's been a great pleasure talking your ear off. I hope I didn't blabber on too too, 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 too much. All right, folks, and we are back. Well, we have tons of time left on this week's episode, so we should, you know, cover all of the latest LGBTQ news that's out there in the world. But first, a programming note, I will actually be taking about a month off from This Show is So Gay, and that is the longest amount of time I have ever taken off in the history of this show. I see other podcasts doing seasons, and I'm like, that's kind of a cool idea, because that implies that there's also an off-season, and I've never really done an off-season. I think the most I've ever done is taken two episodes off in a row, and I feel bad about that, but this time around, I'm actually going to take a month off. For those of you listening for the first time, a little bit of history on the show, the goal of the show was to do maybe like 15 episodes. Started out on WVEWLP, Brattleboro Community Radio, right there in Brattleboro, Vermont. And the goal was to do maybe 15 episodes. It was a live show at the time. Now, flash forward, it's been 10 years. We're in year 10, and this week is episode number 429. That's episode 429. That's way more than 15 and way more than a few months. We are here in year 10. So I'm going to take a little bit of time off. I'm actually leaving the country this week. I am headed to Guatemala this weekend, and I will be there for 27 days. And I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do there, but it's going to be starting the year someplace else and getting some perspective and getting a breath of fresh air, which is what I'm looking forward to. What I thought I was going to be doing in Guatemala was I was actually hired to do a book. I signed a book contract with Arcadia Publishing to do a book on LGBTQ Cleveland. And so you know Arcadia. They have all those books out there in the bookstores. They're the sepia tone covers with like a plaque on them, and it'll say... Baltimore Bridges. I assume there are bridges in Baltimore. So Baltimore Bridges, and you have all these pictures of bridges. They are largely image-based texts, and so it's a lot of captions. Well, they have a new series 
called Images of Modern America. And in this series, Images of Modern America, they are doing the LGBTQ slice of life for all of these different cities. So they got in touch with me because they wanted to do a Cleveland edition. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. And I said yes to it thinking it was going to be much easier than it turned out to be. Uh, I thought I could get all the pictures from one source like I see the other books doing. That was not the case for me. But here's the deal. This project, LGBTQ Cleveland, is without question. This is not hyperbole, my friends. Not hyperbole, listeners. This is without question the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. But it is also, without question, the most important and most rewarding thing I have ever done in my life. There are going to be between 160 and 170 images of LGBTQ life in Cleveland from about, I think the earliest picture I have is 1972, so about 45 years in the making. And instead of one source, I think my photos come from about 16 different sources. The oral histories I have heard, just the incredible, incredible stories that I get to feature in this book, the most rewarding thing and the most important thing I've ever done in my life. So the plan was collect all the images before I go to Guatemala this weekend and then write all the captions when I'm there because all the captions are like 70 to 100 words. And I figured I could knock these off quickly. And then about a week and a half ago, I thought, why don't I just write a couple of the 170 captions? And so I started and I could not stop. And no joke, in the past week and a half, I've written all 170 captions. So I still have a little bit of editing to do, and I got to write an introduction, and I got to do the back cover, and I got to do some acknowledgments. But the book is largely done. And so you will be seeing LGBTQ Cleveland coming at you for Pride 2018. And I am pretty darn excited about that. Now, I know that everybody listening out there is not listening in Cleveland. So you're thinking, yeah, I'm probably not going to pick up LGBTQ Cleveland. But the cool thing, about the book is that, yes, these events all take place in Cleveland, but they are just connected to national history. And that's been one of the great opportunities about doing this book is that on the one hand, sure, I get to write about the Rock and Roll City Sisters. And I love the Rock and Roll City Sisters. And that is the Cleveland branch of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. So I get to write about the Rock and Roll City Sisters, but then I also get to pivot to the history of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and we have featured one of those sisters on the show in the past. You can go to thisshowissogay.com, listen to every single episode we have ever done, and you will hear one of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence on a past show. But I get to write about their history and the incredible work that they did in activism in San Francisco in the 70s and the 80s and you know the 90s up until today. There are all these different branches. So it's been an incredible project. And even if you don't live in Cleveland, you're going to want to pick this up because the pictures are incredible and the stories are incredible. And it's basically LGBTQ life in any city, though it's very specific to Cleveland as well. So I don't know what I'm going to do in Guatemala. The plan was to work on this book that I've largely written in the past week and a half. So I'm excited to chill out in a different country. So if you're listening somehow in Guatemala, I'll see you there. I'll be in Antigua for 27 days. So exciting stuff. That's what's going on with me. So that's why I am going to take a month off. We will run some of my favorite episodes that we've done in the past. I know I definitely want to run the one with Ambassador Rufus Gifford, who 
He is now running for Congress there in Massachusetts. So he was incredible ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark under President Obama, and then he came back, and now he is running for Congress in Massachusetts. So really exciting stuff. I know I'll run that one. And if you have a preference for another show that you really loved that I did, I will run that one. Just send me an email, ken at thisshowissogay.com. That's ken at thisshowissogay.com. Now, finally, let's do the news. That was a lot. That was a lot of me just spouting off about what's going on in my life. By the way, I do love hearing what's going on in your life, so send that email, ken at thisshowissogay.com. I respond to every single email. I will respond even when I'm in Guatemala. How about the news? Big stuff. Big stuff this week. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a case that threatens to undermine anti-discrimination protections for LGBT people. The case is of a religious baker represented by an evangelical law firm seeking to undermine state-level LGBT discrimination protections. Here's the deal. Jack Phillips of Colorado's Masterpiece Cake Shop launched a legal challenge to state anti-discrimination laws after refusing to serve gay couple David Mullins and Charlie Craig. The baker refused to make a cake for the couple after he found out they were celebrating their wedding. Mr. Phillips claims that Jesus would discriminate against gay people and continues to insist his religion requires discrimination against gay people. LGBT campaigners say that if the court sides with Mr. Phillips, the case threatens to blow a hole in decades of civil rights laws and anti-discrimination protections across the United States. President Trump's Justice Department delivered oral arguments as part of the Baker's defense, arguing that the Justice Department has a substantial interest in the case to protect free expression. We'll get to that in a second. The Human Rights Campaign said the case, quote, will either protect the fundamental equality of LGBT people or set a dangerous precedent giving businesses a license to discriminate. HRC President Chad Griffin said this quote, at its core, this case is a cynical effort to manipulate the First Amendment in order to provide a license to discriminate against LGBTQ people and our families. The Trump-Pence administration's decision to back discrimination in this case is another attack in their all-out war against the LGBTQ community. At every turn, they have sought to undermine the civil rights of LGBTQ people. It's crucial that the justices reject discrimination and stand on the side of fairness and equality. So this could have far-reaching effects. Sarah Kate Ellis, the president and CEO of GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, added this quote, the Department of Justice will pretend that this case is not about discrimination as they argue in front of the Supreme Court today, but that could not be further from the truth. While freedom of religion is paramount to our nation's success, it does not give anyone the right to impose their beliefs on others, to harm others, or to discriminate. There is no sugarcoating the blatant and ugly agenda to discriminate against LGBTQ people at the core of this case, which is about seeking religious exemptions from non-discrimination laws for the singular purpose of refusing service to people simply because of who they are. Right? So all these folks said this before the case, and then the case actually happened. Donald Trump's solicitor general claimed it should be acceptable for artistic businesses to put up, quote, we do not serve gay couples signs while appearing before the Supreme Court. This actually, actually happened, okay? At this Supreme Court case, the Solicitor General of the United States, Noel Francisco, delivered oral arguments as part of the Baker's defense on behalf of the Trump administration. Appearing before the court, Francisco likened the gay wedding 
to the KKK. He said this, quote, This case raises an important issue for a small group of individuals, namely whether the state may compel business owners, including professional artists, to engage in speech in connection with an expressive event like a marriage celebration to which they're deeply opposed. Is the thing that's being regulated something we call protected speech? I think the problem for my friends on the other side is that they think the question doesn't even matter, so they would compel an African-American sculptor to sculpt a cross for a clan service. He actually said that. The Trump official claimed it was, quote, a narrow category of services that do cross the threshold into protected speech. Incredibly, Francisco appeared to answer in the affirmative when Justice Kennedy asked if the baker could, quote, put a sign in his window saying, we do not bake cakes for gay weddings. Francisco said this, quote, Your Honor, I think that he could say he does not make custom-made wedding cakes for gay weddings, but most cakes would not cross that threshold. When he was asked if the argument was an affront to the gay community, Francisco said this, quote, I agree that there are dignity interests at stake here, and I would not minimize the dignity interest to the gay couple one bit, but there are dignity interests on the other side here, too. Justice Sotomayor latched onto the claim. She said this, quote, We live in a society with competing beliefs, and all of our cases have always said where LGBT people have been humiliated, disrespected, treated uncivilly. The briefs are filled with situations that the gay couple who was left on the side of the highway on a rainy night, people who have been denied medical treatment or whose children have been denied medical treatment because the doctor didn't believe in same-sex parenthood. We've always said in our public accommodations laws, we can't change your private beliefs. We can't compel you to like these people. We can't compel you to bring them into your home. But if you want to be part of a community, of our civic community, there's certain behavior, conduct you can't engage in. And that includes not selling products that you sell to everyone else, to people simply because of their race, religion, national origin, gender, and in this case, sexual orientation. So we can't legislate civility and rudeness, but we can and have permitted it as a compelling state interest legislating behavior. Well, Francisco responded this quote, we don't think you can force a speaker to join the parade because when you force a speaker to both engage in speech and contribute that speech to an expressive event that they disagree with, you fundamentally transform the nature of their message from one that they want to say to one that they don't want to say. There you go. There was so much more that happened in this case, but we will find out when this ruling comes down, which will take a little bit of time, but uh, we will certainly be covering that. This is a very, very big deal. So that is the Supreme Court. Let's talk about the great state of Kentucky. Kentucky clerk Kim Davis. Remember Kim Davis? She's still out there. Kentucky clerk Kim Davis is officially facing an election challenge from the gay man she discriminated against. Let's file this story under karma. Kentucky clerk Kim Davis is officially facing an election challenge from the gay man she discriminated against. Kim Davis made the news in 2015, as you'll recall, after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of marriage equality all across the land. And she decided to ignore the ruling and subsequent demands from a string of state courts in order to block the weddings of same-sex couples in the county. She went to jail for it, but she is still running for re-election. 
David Ermold, who was filmed being denied a marriage license by Davis back in 2015, launched his campaign to become Rowan County Clerk this week, ahead of the election next year. Davis, who was initially elected as a Democrat, she has announced plans to seek re-election as a Republican. But Ermold, who was eventually allowed to marry his partner by a deputy clerk in 2015, says that Davis has proved herself unfit to hold the office, and he will battle to stop her retaining the clerk position. He said this, quote, I think we need to deal with the circumstances and the consequences of what happened. I have an obligation here, really, to do this and set things right. This campaign we are putting together is about unity and bringing people together and restoring fairness. Speaking to NBC, he said this, I believe I can win. I was very disappointed in the presidential election, and I think there needs to be more integrity. I think politicians need to answer some questions. We must recommit ourselves to embracing the diversity within our community, and we must stand strong against those who have turned their backs on our people to pursue the divisive agenda of outside politicians and organizations. So he acknowledges that the campaign will not be easy. Kim Davis has the wealth of the evangelical lobby now behind her, but he is still moving forth. So there you go. Kim Davis not running unopposed in her quest to retain a position that she basically gave up on when she decided to stop marrying people, which is her job. Uh-huh. A Republican lawmaker is facing calls to resign after telling a Democrat to stop touching him because, quote, I don't like men as you might. During a House State Government Committee meeting this week, Democrat Matt Bradford lightly touched his colleague, Majority Chairman Daryl Metcalf, on the arm. This, this is something that actually actually happened, okay? He did so while emphasizing that he understood the Republicans' point of view, but was interrupted for a rant which left the committee and Bradford shocked and appalled. This was because Metcalf, who, like Bradford, serves in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, seemed to take the light contact as a sexual approach. He said this, quote, Representative Bradford just Look, I'm a heterosexual. I have a wife. I love my wife. I don't like men as you might, but don't stop touching me all the time. Keep your hands to yourself. Like if you want to touch somebody, you have people on your side of the aisle that might like it. I don't. And he just kept on going. This is something that actually happened. It was a light touch on the arm. It set off someone in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Huh. Some sensitivity there. We're not going to question it. A religious advisor to Donald Trump has suggested that people should snub the weddings of their gay relatives. Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council is a close, confident, and informal advisor to Donald Trump, consulting directly with the Republican on religious issues during his election campaign. While his group, which also has ties to Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief strategist, this week his group encouraged Christians to shun gay weddings. He made the claim on his internet radio show while taking calls from listeners. According to Right Wing Watch, Perkins said this, quote, I get the whole argument about love. We just need to show love. Sometimes expressing love is standing for truth. And I think we could lull people into a false sense of security by simply going along with what is culturally acceptable in some circles. Now, I'm not going to tell people across the board you shouldn't go. I haven't gone that far. I would tell people to be very prayerful about it. But I personally, it's not something I could do. I don't think it would be a good representation. People knowing very clearly my stand on biblical truth. And I think other Christians need to bear that in mind as well. So that is Tony Perkins saying, hey, 
I would never go to a gay wedding. I don't know who's inviting him, but if you're going to invite him, no, he probably is not going to attend your wedding. Sorry, but maybe he'll buy you something off registry, maybe? I don't know. Washington may soon give non-binary people legal recognition. This is the state of Washington. The state of Washington has proposed adding a third gender labeled X to official documents like driver's licenses and birth certificates. If approved, the changes would come into effect in just two months, right there in February of 2018. At a public hearing for the plan, supporters are reported to have greatly outnumbered those in opposition. During the meeting, which was standing room only, young residents spoke up in defense of their rights. One of them said this, quote, As a kid growing up in the Midwest, it's a dream for me to see a state like Washington taking a stand to legitimize non-binary identities when a lot of the time we're really invisible in a whole lot of places. Someone else said this, quote, I'm grateful to be living in a time when trans people are beginning to be treated with fairness, understanding, and compassion, and to be living and working in a state where we are receiving more recognition than ever before. There were some people who opposed this change. Kaylee Triller-Haver, co-founder of the transphobic Hands Across the Aisle Women's Coalition, warned vaguely of, quote, unintended consequences. She said this, quote, we're going to create a lot more victims in the process, but she wasn't more specific than that. So that is the state of Washington. They're considering adding a third gender to official documents. Progress. We like progress. Okay, we've come to that point. Deep inhale. It is yet another episode of this show is so gay. So we must give you yet another update on President Trump's ban on trans people serving in the military through three tweets this summer. Because we do it every single week. I don't know what you guys are going to do without these updates for the next month. But I won't have them for you because I'm running repeats. But when I run repeats, you'll hear probably me covering the news and some updates from, you know, the past on President Trump's ban on trans people serving in the military. The Pentagon is now taking steps to accept transgender troops. So this is a big deal. Last month, a D.C. judge has ruled that transgender soldiers must be allowed to join the military starting on January 1st, refusing to let the Trump administration continue pushing back a deadline for the admission of trans service personnel. Following the ruling, the Pentagon says it is now taking steps to comply and is set to begin accepting trans troops in just 27 days. In a statement to the Washington Examiner, a Pentagon spokesperson confirmed, quote, while reviewing legal options with the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense is taking steps to be prepared to initiate accessions of transgender applicants for military service on January 1st, 2018, per recent court orders. So... They are now moving forward to go back to accepting trans troops. If they spend more money on this, it's just ridiculous. It would be absolutely ridiculous if they spend more money to fight this. It should be based on military readiness. That is the only thing. Let's talk about the White House a little bit more. The Trump White House has excluded LGBTQ people and black reporters from their annual media Christmas party. It is the first time since President George W. Bush that LGBT reporters have been left off the invite list and the first time in 20 years that black groups have been excluded. Chris Johnson, the chief political and White House reporter for the Washington Blade, one of the world's oldest LGBT publications, is among those uninvited. The first Mr. Johnson knew of his AWOL invite was over Thanksgiving. He told The Independent this, quote, My first reaction was I assumed it must have been an oversight. 
After emailing White House officials, he was passed between numerous spokespeople, none of which could answer his question. He said this, quote, It is consistent with the White House press secretary not calling on me during the on-camera press briefings. Unbelievable. He believes that the issue over the invite is, quote, just kind of consistent with the policy of the administration to exclude LGBTQ people. April D. Ryan, the White House correspondent and D.C. Bureau Chief for American Urban Radio Networks, who is black, was also excluded from the invite list. Ms. Ryan told the Washington Post this, quote, I don't think I was overlooked. I don't think they like me. For whatever reason, they have disdain for me. She had been invited to this event for the previous 20 years. 20 years. So that's the Christmas party. People are not going to be going to this holiday party. Now, we do have to update you on what's going on with Roy Moore. It'll probably change by the time you hear this, but President Trump has endorsed extreme homophobe Roy Moore's bid for the U.S. Senate, despite allegations of sexual assault and child molestation. And and it gets worse and worse for Roy Moore. Roy Moore has called the legislation of gay sex terrible and devastating. He is the most homophobic Senate candidate in recent history. He's been accused by nine women of sexual misconduct. He was twice removed. Yes, that would be twice removed from being Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. And he said that California's decision to legalize same-sex marriage was proof that the United States was a nation gone under. He said that the ruling would lead to laws allowing, quote, one man to marry ten women or a man to marry his two daughters. He is a disgraced judge. He said this in a 2008 speech to Vision Forum, a now disbanded evangelical group which promoted an extremely misogynistic biblical patriarchy theology. And so Roy Moore, the most anti-gay candidate that anyone can remember, accused by nine different women of sexual misconduct, and still the polls are kind of close. I will be in Guatemala. I'm going to attempt I don't think I'm going to be successful at this, but I am going to attempt to not be following the news while I'm away. Again, I'm pretty sure I'm going to suck at that, but I need to know who's going to win that election. There is more Supreme Court news. This kind of flew under the radar a little bit. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to review a ruling that affirmed gay couples can be denied, can be denied marital benefits and employment. The city of Houston was sued by evangelical anti-gay activists over their decision to extend marriage benefits to spouses of gay and lesbian employees. The Republican-dominated Texas Supreme Court ruled against the city, finding that the extension of marriage to same-sex couples does not necessarily include the extension of the benefits of marriage. So they said you can get married, but you can't get the benefits of marriage that other people get. Huh. Houston had appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court to review the ruling, but this week the court declined to do so, allowing the previous ruling against the city to stand. That is a blow. That is definitely a blow to equality. And last but not least, I I mentioned in my chat with Beth Lapidus, we did just celebrate World AIDS Day. Almost all of us celebrated the totality of World AIDS Day, except for President Trump. President Trump gave a statement to mark World AIDS Day that somehow did not feature a single mention of the LGBTQ community. It's really quite unbelievable. There was absolutely no shout out to the LGBTQ community at all on World AIDS Day. So that is more of the erasure that has been happening consistently, consistently, consistently from the Trump White House. Again, I'm going to another country. 
I am wishing you guys just the happiest holiday ever. I hope you have just a safe and incredible new year. I want you to think about next year. I want you to think about how you are going to use your voice to make a difference in 2018. By the way, there's still December left of 2017, so there's still more change you can create. But I want you to get out there. I want you to put on your cape. We are all going to be superheroes from here on out. So many of you are already. Put on your cape, get out there, and use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference. I believe in you. I just love all of you for listening and and doing this, this important work to raise up the voices of our LGBTQ and ally brothers and sisters, all of our siblings out there. Get out there, make a difference, and have a wonderful holiday, a wonderful new year. And please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?